to be with you this morning. Now, the Bible is, is a big book. It's a big book, the Bible. And one of the questions that Christians and non-Christians can have is how do the different parts fit together? You know, you're plowing your way through the Old Testament. How does that sort of relate to the New Testament? And today, that's what we're going to be looking at. Today, we're going to be looking at the book of Kings in the Old Testament, that is, in the scripture before Jesus. And we're going to look at the first 11 chapters, and I'm going to give an overview there. If you're a Christian, I hope that what we look at today will help you to understand in a new way some familiar stories that you've read over the years in the book of Kings. But it may be that you're not a Christian and you're visiting today. Well, I'm glad that you're here. And I hope that from this you'll understand something of the history of the Bible and how Jesus fits into God's big picture. God's big picture of the way that he has spoken to this world over thousands of years. So that's what we're looking at today as we uh, look at this book of Kings. Now, the book of Kings itself, it begins with a moment of glory. A moment of glory. Have you ever had a moment of glory? It might be in that summertime where you're playing backyard cricket and you reach out and you know, leap and catch the ball and everyone cheers and there's... That's your moment of glory. Hopefully you've got more than that in your life, but you know, maybe you've, you've had that moment of glory. Or it may be uh, th- that you've done a performance, a performance at school or some public performance somewhere. Or you've gone and you've watched your children give a performance and you've seen their, their moment of glory. Of course, the wedding day is a moment of glory, isn't it? Where the bride comes in beautifully dressed and uh, it, it, it's, it's this glorious moment, moment celebrating together. There are academic awards that people get. Uh, you may glory when you've built something. You've built something in your house. And you stand back and you look at that and you go, wow, that actually turned out well. <laughs> and then hopefully, hopefully that's uh, what's been said about it. But it, it can be that you go... I'm really glad how that went. And there's that moment of going, that, that was well done. And people say, well done. Well done. You've really helped us with this. What about when God displays his glory? When God shows his glory to us, when God reveals his glory to the world, what does it look like? You know, if, if you're a Christian and you're trying to explain Christianity to your friends, what do you point them to? When you want to show them how good God is, how glorious God is, what do you point them to? Well, this is what the book of Kings shows us. It shows us how God glorifies himself in this world, how it begins by showing us how God glorifies himself in this world. Now, some brief background that we need. Um, This book of Kings is recording history from around the year 950 BC. 950 BC, so a long time before Jesus. It's after the time of the judges in Israel and the kings of Israel are just getting established and becoming the new norm. Israel is now having a permanent uh, king. Now, to understand who these kings are... We need to go to the previous book, which sets the context 
for the book of Kings. So if you've got your Bible, please come with me to 2 Samuel chapter 7 and we'll read about the covenant that God makes with a man named David and this covenant really sets up who these kings are and what God's relationship with them is. So 2 Samuel chapter 7 from halfway through verse 11. This is the prophet Nathan speaking and he says, The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you, David. When your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, who will come from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with the rod of men and with floggings inflicted by men. But my love will never be taken away from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed before you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So this is the covenant, the agreement that God makes with a man named King David. And it's that David's son. Well, what do we see here? We see that David is going to have an everlasting dynasty. There will always be a son of David ruling after David. And th this son of David, what's he going to do? Well, he will build the house of the Lord. He's going to build the temple. So the son of David is the temple builder. He is the one who will establish the worship for Israel and lead them in their worship. We also see in verse 14, um, I will be his father and he will be my son. That is, the kings of Israel, the sons of David, were the sons of God. They're the sons of God, and God is their father. In fact, these are the anointed kings of Israel. The word anointed is this word Messiah. And so here are the messiahs of Israel. And what kingdom do they rule over? Well, it's, it's the everlasting kingdom. It's God's kingdom. You can see that in uh, 1 Chronicles as well, where the kingdom of Israel is described as the kingdom of God. So just in summary, who are these kings that we're looking at in the book of Kings? They are the sons of David, the, the sons of God. They are the messiahs. God is their father. They are the ones who will, to be, who will build and look after the temple and lead God's people in worship. They are the ones who will rule over God's kingdom on earth. So these are no ordinary kings, are they? This is no ordinary book. This is not just like the kings of, of uh, England or something. These are the kings of Israel. These are the kings over God's kingdom. With that background, let's go to the book of Kings and see how it begins. Well, it begins with the question of who is going to be the son of David? Who will be the son of David? Because it begins with King David near his death. And the question is raised. Um, sorry, this, there's uh, something playing down here. Okay, that's right. Thank you. Um, uh, it, it, it begins with who 
is going to be the king to follow after King David? Which will be the son? Because David has had many sons. And so the question is, who is going to be the true son of David, the son that God has chosen? Who will be the son who will have the glory of ruling God's kingdom? Now, in this, uh, throughout the Bible, we often find that issues are worked out with two sons, Cain and Abel, Isaac and Ishmael, Esau and Jacob. And here we have Adonijah and Solomon. Adonijah and Solomon. So turn with me, and we're going to meet the first son, Adonijah, in chapter 1 of Kings, verses 5 to 6. Now Adonijah, whose mother was Haggith, put himself forward and said, I will be king. So he got chariots and horses ready with 50 men to run ahead of him. His father had never interfered with him by asking, why do you behave as you do? He was also very handsome and was next after Absalom. So here's Adonijah, and he's a great-looking guy. He's the leader of the pack. Imagine having 50 men who run before you. You're not going to mess with this guy, are you? And he's in a royal type of chariot. So he's got the wheels, he's got the team, he's got the men around him. And people are following him, but he's grasping at the, at the kingdom. He's grasping at the kingdom. I will be king. And his plans are rejected. He goes to have some type of coronation, but it's rejected by David. What about Solomon? Solomon's the next man that we meet here, the next son. How does he receive the kingdom? Well, what's interesting is that Solomon never speaks throughout this whole time. But have a look at how he receives. Chapter 1, verse 32. King David said, Call in Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Benaniah son of Jehoiada. When they came before the king, he said to them, Take your Lord's servant with you and set Solomon, my son, on my own mule and take him down to Gihon. There shall Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet anoint him king over Israel. Blow the, the trumpet and set the seal uh, and shout, Long live the king. So how, how does Solomon receive it? Well, he says nothing. He's put on a, a mule and he's led by others on this mule. He's led by them and then he receives the kingdom. He receives the kingdom. The glory was given to him. And this demonstrates to us who this true son of David is. He's the humble one, the one who is God's choice. He doesn't grasp at power. He's led by others and he receives it. Now, just as a side note, this is obviously what we should be thinking about for our leaders as well. We don't want to have leaders in our church who are grasping at power, who, who manipulate others to get their way to the top. But it's easy to be impressed by grasping people. It's easy to be impressed. Now, we want people who are, who are led by the word. That's what 1 Timothy 3 tells us, isn't it? People who are led by the word of God and are godly. You see, this is who the true son of David is, the one who is led and receives the kingdom. They're the two sons. The next uh, chapters three and four take us to the wisdom of Solomon. Now, in our society, we don't often talk about wisdom, to be honest. We talk more about science. And our, you know, we've left Christianity because we're a, you know, we follow science, which is complete nonsense, actually. Uh, I've studied science at university, and if you look at um, the, the decisions we've made around our morality, 
from the sexual revolution of the 1960s, the outcome of that has actually been a disaster in terms of sexually transmitted diseases and broken families and, and trouble in people's lives. It's been an absolute disaster, which we're still paying for and will continue. See, we don't follow science. And if you believe that, oh, we follow science, I'm afraid you're wrong, right? Because we don't. We follow our, our sinful world follows its own morality and it tries to justify it with science when it wants to, but will completely reject the science when it needs to. You see, wisdom's very different. Science is that analytical type of understanding of the forces around us. It's amoral in one sense. Wisdom is more that moral discernment to be able to look around you and discern the proper order of things, discern how life should be, when to say something, when not to say something. It's a different type of knowledge, isn't it? Now, God grants Solomon anything he wants. He comes to Solomon and says, ask me whatever you want. And we read in chapter 3, verse 7. Now, the Lord, my God, uh, now, O Lord, my God, you have made your servant king in place of my father, David. But I am only a child and do not know how to carry out my duties. Your servant is here among the people you have chosen, a great people, too numerous to count and number. So give your servant a discerning heart to govern your people and to distinguish between right and wrong. For who is able to govern this great people of yours? And so we see that Solomon asks for wisdom. Solomon is the great king for when God comes to him and says, what, what do you want? Like, what would you want if God came to you and said, I'll give you whatever you want? Well, that's what happened to Solomon. And he said, I want wisdom to live the way I should for God's people. It's not a bad prayer, is it? It's actually a prayer in the, in the New Testament that the apostles pray for you. In James chapter 1, James says, ask for wisdom. Ask for wisdom so that you can know how to live as a Christian. In Paul's letters, he often begins by praying that you'll have wisdom, spiritual wisdom and understanding to understand the things of God. It's not just for Solomon. It is for him, but it's for you too. We need to know what part we play in God's kingdom. And God answers this prayer for him. And there's famous stories about his, his wisdom. Remember when there's the two women who come to him with one baby and that they were both living together and they had two children and one of the children died and they couldn't figure out who owned the, the child because they both wanted the child. And Solomon in his wisdom gives the answer. And everyone's amazed at how he was able to sort out really difficult domestic situations which are, are not easy to sort out. He also brings peace to all the land around him. Now, just think about that. Peace in the Middle East. Peace around Israel. You need wisdom. Go and look at the history in that place for the last 5,000 years. Solomon brought peace to Israel. That is outstanding. But it's more than just that he brought peace and justice. And, and it's more than just wisdom. Look at chapter 4, verse 32. Chapter 4, verse 32. It says, Solomon, he spoke 3,000 proverbs and songs, and his songs numbered 1,005. He described plant life from the cedar of Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of the walls. 
He taught about animals and birds and reptiles and fish. All men of all, uh, men of all nations came to listen to Solomon's wisdom sent by all the kings of the world who had heard about his wisdom. So what's interesting here is that it's more than what we might call wisdom, but he's, there's a real artistic flourishing. He's writing all these songs. I mean, the, God, the guy's a song leader. He's leading God's people in songs. He's, uh, there's this artistic explosion that happens around him, and there's this science as he describes plants and animals. Obviously, naming them and describing them and doing different things. Now, we haven't seen something like this for a while in the Bible, have we? Haven't really seen anything like it since Adam. Because who's the last one who's naming animals and describing them as he names them? You see, Solomon's the, the, the second Adam. Right? He, see, Solomon is more than just bringing Israel to its glory. He's actually fulfilling humanity. His humanity at its best. His humanity coming into its glory. And now this is one of the first applications I want to bring here. Do you notice how God brings glory to himself? God brings glory to himself through his son. God brings glory to himself through his son. God glorifies his son. And as he glorifies his son, his name is proclaimed. As he glorifies his son, his people share in the blessing that come to the son. Do you want to see God's glory? Then you need to look to the son. You need to look to this son. Let's keep moving. We then move on to the temple. Uh, in chapters 5, this is the next section in Kings. Uh, it's all about Solomon building the temple. And it's a glorious temple. There's these uh, precious stones that are there. There's gold and bronze and silver. And all, all the stones are, are cut out, outside. So there's no sound of, of human building in the, the actual, in the actual uh, place in Jerusalem. Uh, you know, there's, as I said, there's cedar, bronze, stone, wood. It sort of sounds like 1 Corinthians 3 way that Paul talks about his ministry. And um, it's absolutely glorious, this temple that he builds. But most importantly, the glory of God comes and dwells in this temple. And so we see that God makes this temple the place where he comes to dwell with his people and the name of God dwells there. The name of God and so what does this show us? Well, it shows us that the Son of God, the Son, is the one who builds the temple. The Son of God establishes the true worship of God. It's, it's the temple where God's name was. You see, what did the Son of God do? The, the Son, hallowed be your name. That's what Solomon said. Hallowed be the name of the Lord in the temple. Because the, 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 the name of God dwelt in this temple. God was there. And, of course, the temple was the place where the Israelites, no matter where they were, they would face towards Jerusalem. So we read about Daniel facing towards, um, the, uh, towards Jerusalem in that time. And so the temple was the, the direction of prayer. It's the place of worship. It's where God's name is hallowed, and it's the, the direction of our prayers. And finally, we see the glory of Solomon in terms of the nations around him. Look at chapter 10. 
chapter 10, verse 21, which we'd actually read before, but I'll just read those verses there. All, um, all King Solomon's goblets were gold, were gold, and all his household articles and palace uh, in the palace of the forest of Lebanon were pure gold. Nothing was made of silver because silver was considered of little value in Solomon's day. The king had a fleet of trading ships at sea along with the ships of Hiram. Every three years it returned carrying gold, silver, ivory, apes and baboons. So he's got out of the world scene. He's trading with the world. He's going up and down the Red Sea, which is that sort of particular Semitic area to go. And it's bringing in all this wealth for the nation of Israel. And so the, the promise, if you're familiar with it, the promise that God made to Abraham, that God would make a people who would be a blessing to the world and who would become a mighty nation, comes to its fulfillment here. And so again, we see that when God glorifies himself, it is through glorifying his son and that glory going to God's people. Now, the story doesn't finish there, though, with Solomon. Let's look at chapter 11, and I'll read a couple of verses from here. King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women beside Pharaoh's daughter, Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites. They were from the nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them, because they will surely turn your hearts, uh, their hearts after their gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. He, uh, he had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines, and they led him astray. Um, and then we'll go down to verse 11. So the Lord said to Solomon, Since this is your attitude and you have not kept my covenant and my decrees, which I commanded, I will most certainly tear the kingdom away from you and give it to one of your subordinates. So this is the fall of Solomon. The fall of Solomon. He takes these wives most likely for political alliances. But instead of leading in the direction he should go. He allows these women to introduce idolatry and false gods into Israel. Now when you read this story it sounds unbelievable doesn't it? I mean, here is this man who's doing all these great things, strength after strength, success after success, and then this massive failure. But it's actually true of life. It's actually true of life, where we have these leaders that we look to, and then they fail us. And it's also true for our own godliness to realise this. Let me just read to you from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11. The Apostle Paul writes, These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. Now, the Apostle Paul says here, you take heed lest you fall. You might look at Solomon and say, I wouldn't do anything like that. 
Well, the Apostle Paul warns you against thinking that way. What happens with Solomon can happen with us. You take heed. If you think, I'm a strong Christian, I'm a mature Christian, I won't fall in my faith, I can, I can muck around with other gods, I can muck around with this immorality, I can play with these things, it, it'll be fine. I know it's sinful, but it, it's not going to make me fall. Solomon fell. He thought he was strong. He had the reputation. If you think you stand, take heed lest you fall. Do not play with sin. Do not play with sin. And so the kingdom, we read here, is going to be divided. God's name has not been hallowed. And as you read the book of Kings, it, it ends with judgment on God's kingdom and God's kingdom being lost. God's kingdom being lost. The Assyrians come and destroy the northern kingdom. The Babylonians come and destroy the southern kingdom. Now, what's the purpose of Solomon in terms of the whole Bible? How are we to understand him in terms of the whole Bible? This moment of glory and this failure that happens over about a 40-year period, almost a 1,000 years ago. Well, when we read the rest of the Bible, we actually see that Solomon and the kingdom of Israel is part of the way that God explains his kingdom to us. Let me read to you from Zechariah chapter 3, uh, verse 8. And this is after the exile, but it's explaining what the kingdom of God is and its purpose. And this is again in the prophets before Jesus. It says, Listen, O high priest Joshua and your associates seated before you, who are men symbolic of things to come. I am going to bring my servant the branch. Now, did you not notice that? Here he is speaking to the priest. And he's going to talk about the kingdom and, and the king. And he says that you are signs of things to come. You are symbolic of things to come. And what we see is that in the Old Testament, God is demonstrating things to us. He demonstrates things so that we come to understand who he is. Now, what is it that we understand from, uh, from the story of Solomon? Well, we understand important things, don't we? We understand about the Son of God and who the Son of God is and what his function is. We understand about the kingdom of God. We understand about who the Messiah is. We understand about the temple and its place. We understand about sacrifices. We come to understand these things. All of these words now have a history. Solomon provides us the history of the Son of God, the meaning of these words. He provides us the history of the Messiah. He gives us the history and the understanding of the words of the kingdom of God. You see, the story of Solomon is demonstrating the great truths that God has about his kingdom. It also demonstrates something else. It demonstrates that Solomon is not the fulfillment of these truths. Because God's covenant to King David was, your kingdom will be everlasting. Your kingdom will go on forever. And yet, with Solomon, the beginning of the end happens for the kingdom. So Solomon is not the fulfillment. So the story of Solomon teaches us all these principles. The New Testament calls them the shadows and copies. But it also shows us that it's not Solomon. We're meant to be looking beyond Solomon. 
We need to be looking to the one who's going to be greater than Solomon. And of course, this is Jesus. In Matthew chapter 12, we read about Jesus, don't we? And Jesus said that something greater than Solomon is here. When Jesus came, he turned people back to Solomon and said, something greater than Solomon is here. I am doing something greater than Solomon. And it's interesting that when you read the prophets before Jesus, I was, I was in Zechariah. Let me just read to you what Zechariah talks about the coming king, Zechariah 9.9. 9. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, a colt, the fold of a donkey. You see how Zechariah takes the story of Solomon and then projects it into the future. He takes what God had revealed in the history of Solomon. And this is what the prophets do. They take the history of Solomon and they use it for the lens for prophesying about the future. And of course, this is what Jesus does. When Jesus comes, he gets his disciples to get a donkey for him. And he's led by others. He doesn't come charging in on a chariot. He doesn't try to raise an army. Other people had done that. And some of them in the Maccabean periods had been successful for times. So he could have done that if he wanted to. He could have made a strategy for that. But that's not the kingdom he's bringing. He's going to bring a different kingdom, the everlasting kingdom of God. Jesus is not like Adonijah. He doesn't grasp at the kingdom, but he trusts and walks in God's path. We see Jesus' wisdom in the temple, don't we? You know, when he's in the temple and everyone's bringing their questions to him. And, uh, you know, what about this Jesus? What about the man who's got, you know, he's, uh, the woman who's got seven different husbands? And, and uh, you know, which one is going to be married to her in the, the kingdom? You know, you tell me. He's got the wisdom. He answers. Uh, should we pay our taxes to Caesar? He gives, he's got the wisdom. All those stories are like Solomon in the temple, giving the wisdom. You see, he rides in like Solomon. He comes to the temple and gives the answers that Solomon would have given. He comes as the Prince of Peace. He is the true Adam, the, the, the true second Adam, the true fulfillment of humanity. That's how the New Testament talks about him. Jesus is the best of humanity. Jesus is the best of humanity. It's not Muhammad, it's not Buddha, it's not you. Right? It's Jesus. You might think you're pretty good. No, no, no. We all fall short of God's standard. If we were running the kingdom of God, we would have been judged under the Babylonians. We would have, had our, would have been killed along under that judgment because that's what we would have deserved. But with the coming of Jesus, he is the best of humanity. He is God coming to us, perfecting our humanity, coming and doing what we have failed to do. Jesus calls himself the temple on many occasions. Uh, in John chapter 2, and it's, it's brought up in, in, uh, on his crucifixion, where Jesus is the temple. He speaks about himself as the temple. And so in Jesus, God's name is hallowed. Jesus prayed for us to hallow his name. He's, a, he's the one who actually hallowed it. The temple is the place where God comes to dwell with us. Jesus is this true son who makes the temple, who builds the temple in his resurrection body, the resurrection kingdom, the true place where God and man dwell. Jesus is the one who brings the true worship and establishes the true worship of God. You see, if we're sharing the gospel with people, 
This is what we need to do. We need to be pointing them to Jesus. But we've got content when we do that. We point them to the fact that he is the wise one, that he is the coming Messiah, that, that he is the, the perfection of humanity, that he is the true temple, uh, the one who establishes the true worship of God and where God and man meet, that he is the direction of our prayer and we direct our worship of God towards him. You see that there's content, isn't there? And Solomon lays the foundation for us, for our gospel content. You see, Jesus is the glory of God. And it's as God has glorified his son that, he, that, that this message of God's glory is seen throughout the world. This is what we're to be doing as Christians. We're to be pointing people to Jesus. Jesus did these things for us. Jesus did these things for us. And he established a kingdom that will never pass away. He established God's resurrection kingdom. When Jesus was raised from the dead, it was to bring about that resurrection kingdom. And he is the king who has died on the cross, paying that ultimate sacrifice so that we can share in that kingdom. You and I do not deserve the kingdom of God. When we die, we don't deserve to be part of the kingdom of God. But God in his grace and mercy has come to us this man Jesus, this Messiah Jesus, he has established God's kingdom and made it so that we can be part of it. Let's pray.